0: Everyone, this is David Bernstein, founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. I'm pleased to have with us uh, today two of my good friends, um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about them in a minute. Um, this series that we're doing um, on Shine a Light on Antisemitism is part of a major national program uh, called Shine a Light. And it is meant to expose the issues of anti-Semitism both inside the Jewish community, and outside, and to raise awareness of what we can do together to fight anti-Semitism. Um, we're very pleased um, to be introducing you to some new partners in some of the communities and organizations that we've been engaging. And for me, it's been a real labor of love to meet new friends and to get to know them through podcasts and programs that we're doing together, and so forth. Um, and the last one we did on Friday was with two Asian-American leaders. Um, and um, today we are bringing two um, African-American or Black thinkers that I've got to know very well. Um, it's a bit ironic because, uh, because both of them are sort of in a post-racial mindset. So uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, I and whether I should have even we should have even titled the program the way that we did. But that's okay. I think I think they'll understand the irony involved. Um I'm going to let I'm gonna tell you who they are, but I'm gonna let them introduce themselves and the organizations and what they do because they'll do a better job than me. Um, Dr. Sheena Mason is the uh, founder of the theory of Racelessness. She's gonna tell you about about that. Um, and Greg Thomas is the CEO of the Jazz Leadership Project, and also someone who we've gotten to, who's worked diligently on um, the issue of anti-Semitism. And I'm going to we're going to want to hear more about that as well. So, um, Shino, why don't we start with you? Tell us about the theory of who you are and the theory of racelessness.
1: So I'm Dr. Sheena Mason. I'm assistant professor at SUNY Oneonta. I teach all things English literature, and I'm also the president and co-founder of Theory of Racelessness. Theory of Racelessness is an educational consulting business where we teach people alternative philosophies of race and by extension, alternative philosophies of racism. And we help people free themselves from the box racism creates and tries to pigeonhole us in. And while we didn't start our work in a, a sort, as a sort of counter to the contemporary DEI and anti-racist practices, um, we found that many people view us as one of the solutions to such such work that is ironically perpetuating and upholding the problem of racism.
0: Craig. Craig, tell us about yourself and the Jazz Leadership Project.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me, David. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me, great to join Dr. Sheena Mason again in mm-hmm. in conversation. Um, the Jazz Leadership Project is an enterprise focused on leadership and team development, focusing on the, or through the principles and practices of jazz music. There are, it's primarily organizational work in which we work with uh, companies, corporations, and teams to enhance their leadership capacity and their ability to work together collaboratively. As an extension of such leadership work, The Jazz Leadership Project has also been involved in civic leadership. We feel it's a responsibility as citizens of the United States of America to not only focus on business enterprise, but focus on our citizenship and and what we can do to enhance civic relationships and civil relationships as Americans. So I'll, I'll leave it there. there, there are more details to that, which I'm sure we'll get into since uh, you and your organization and organizations have been involved in some of those projects, David,
0: okay. and you know also. Absolutely. So l- let's just take a second to sort of define in your view the current ideological moment. You know, um, we're in a very, I think it's safe to say polarized moment. Um, we are all on here partly because we are concerned about the state of liberal discourse in this country um greg why don't we start with you what are what are your thoughts and concerns about where this country is today where the discourse in this country is today
2: well it's it's very concerning um when you look at the history of the country it is not unusual for there to be ideological differentiation, please excuse me. Um, However, the current moment um, has a particular set of dangers attendant to it, particularly when you look at the extremes. Um, I've written about my own declaration as a radical moderate. So I, I feel that the extremes of political discourse on the right and the left, liberal, conservative, in particular, um, often gets more attention in the mainstream media and social media than voices who are trying to learn how in a pluralistic society we can work together, maintain and respect our differences, but find points of commonality and points in which we can focus on how we can work together and move together forward in unity. Um, So I'm finding that it's troubling because as you alluded to, David, just the very idea of liberal principles, classically liberal principles of dialogue in a pluralistic society seems to be challenged by some of these ideological forces. And that being a very foundation of the nation, if you look at uh, the process through which the founders engaged in debate, discourse, in order to come up with the, what Ralph Ellison called our sacred documents, it happened through dialogue and debate. So if we cannot speak freely about issues, then we have, uh, we're pulling the rug from under some of the very foundations that our democracy is
1: based
0: on. Sheena, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I I think that it's ironic because I study African-American literature, American literature, and Caribbean literature, and so I'm very well aware of how what I see happening in the public sphere increasingly isn't anything new, (laughs) especially as it pertains to topics around race and racism. It's actually nothing new. And the attempt to marginalize and exclude particular voices, often racialized as Black voices, from the public sphere of debate is a, is the genesis of my work and interest in uh, really grappling with and understanding what is race, what is racism, what is it to be anti-racist, and what what will it take to solve or resolve unify and heal um such areas of contention right and so it's ironic to me because the marginalization and excluding aren't new at least as it pertains to that particular thread but what is especially harmful now i think is something something of what Greg just mentioned, which speaks to the sort of discounting of dissenting opinions, but that the discounting and devaluing of those particular voices and opinions under the guise of what's progressive and and liberal and right and just and good. Um, So that anyone else who has a different framework, Different way of thinking of seeing oneself, of seeing the world, is demonized and, in some ways, devalued and demoralized. I think that is what I what is most harmful, even to the purveyors of such practices and ideas, because ultimately, the goalpost for "quote unquote" liberation, the goalpost for resolving some of the tensions that exist in our society keeps moving to the point where many people seem to be under the impression that success is 100% compliance and thinking the same about any mm. particular topic. And I think that that idea and that effort is problematic for so many reasons, which I, I think it will make sense just on its face value. But also it's harmful for the people who think this way because human beings will never agree 100% on any particular thing. I don't think that should be the goal.
0: Mm. Yeah. It, it seems that in a way, people are trying to squelch diversity in the name of diversity. Um, I, I wanna, I'm going to bring you back on here, Sheena, because we, we, you have uh, the theory of racelessness, and I want to talk a little bit of, about what that is and how you see race and racism. And then I'll have um, Greg uh, comment on that as well. But why don't we start with you?
1: So there are six philosophies of race, and each of us holds two of those philosophies, even without having the language to name the thing. The philosophies of race that are most practiced in the United States are sort of default philosophies that are taught through the type of thing that's being called anti-racist work currently. Those philosophies are namely something called naturalism, where we're taught to believe that race is biological. Constructionism, where we're taught to think of race as as a social category. It's constructed. It might not be biological, but it exists and it's important and it matters and it's part of one's identity. And also Um, something called reconstruction, which is namely the idea that as a social construction, there's something that we can reconstruct to operate better for more people. And the shortcomings of all of those positions, I mean, in terms of naturalism, race isn't in nature. It's not biological. You can look, you can do a quick search on Google, on YouTube, and find countless geneticists, countless research disproving the existence of race as biology as it pertains to the constructionist conception of race part of the shortcoming of that philosophy is that it insists on the reconstruction of race from within the same category that that one is is um, trying to dismantle in a lot of ways usually because of how racism operates in society but as a constructionist like Ibram X. Kendi or Robin DiAngelo or any number of other big names that we could point to and identify their philosophies of race, what happens is the practice of anti-racism requires and necessitates operating within this racialized framework so that a person can't and probably shouldn't ex- escape their whiteness or see themselves outside the category of whiteness. Or blackness, or Asianness, or whatever the racial category, and then this leads to number one, the upholding of the problem of racism because race is the hierarchy. Race is racism, in other words, and it also uh, creates racism where there might otherwise not be racism because it does create a sort of contention or animosity, a defensiveness and offensiveness in terms of how one sees themselves in relation to other people. So theory of racistness teaches people something called skepticism and eliminativism, two philosophies of race that are almost unheard of, uncommonly taught. And if the thread of skepticism or eliminativism has come out in the public disfor- discourse it has been misconstrued and misunderstood as a skeptic i argue that we're already raceless every single one of us is raceless race is not of nature and it's not a social construction what people misidentify as race or racial it's something like ethnicity or it's something cultural or it's, some, or it's racism masquerading itself as race. And in that way, I come to help people see how racism is race and vice versa. So that reconstructing race means we're trying to reconstruct racism. And then what's the point, right? Because there's an irony and a paradox that comes along with the idea of reconstructing racism. We just need to get rid of it. So theory of racistness is really theory of racismlessness. Um, And then the eliminativism aspect is to help people identify racism more clearly by really understanding the nature of race and what people point to as race or racial, stop conflating race with culture and ethnicity, things that do matter, and certainly recognizing the racism that hides its face as race in our society. And from outside of the box, outside of the category of racism, i.e. race. Now we can become more clear-eyed and astute about what racism is, which means we can actually solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And then that means that it's aspirational. Racelessness is aspirational because it's something we aspire to because we recognize that most people view race as real, either in nature or as a construction. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So that's the core of the work that we do.
0: Excellent, thank you for that explanation. So Greg, what do you think of the theory of uh, racelessness?
2: I love it. I love it because it has given further substantiation to perspectives that I've had for quite a long time based on my own study of race, racialization, racism, um, and my study, my deep study of culture. Um, my deep study of idiomatic variations in culture, which are groups of people who develop various styles in the way they go about living their lives as expressed in what they eat, how they move, dance, the arts, etc. So I, I welcomed her to a... Um, a body of thought that actually has been around, but she's doing a wonderful job of crystallizing it from a literary and philosophical place that I think is gonna really move us forward. So I honor Dr. Sheena Mason for her work. I thank her for her work. And um, I think it's a great addition to the discourse, which is why um, after learning about her work, just in the last few months, I invited her to participate in a broadcast event that the Jazz Leadership Project did in collaboration with the American Sephardi Federation and the Combat Anti-Semitism Movement Organization called Combating Racism and Anti-Semitism Together, Shaping an Omni-American Future. So um, I was happy that she said yes to being involved. And, uh, and I was very happy that uh, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values also joined us as a partner for that, for that uh, event and broadcast.
0: We were honored. So every once in a while, it's not actually that infrequent, um, I have to fill out a form, I'm sure you do too, um, where it asks me what my racial or ethnic identity is and i have to tell you you know i i every single time i pause you know i'm technically you know half western asian so it's it's not even that i could you know even given the racial categorizations that were handed i could still legitimately consider myself uh, not being white so I, I always struggle whether i should say not applicable or white or asian or something completely different uh, i'm never comfortable with the with with the A through B option. Um, Yeah, so, and I'm wondering, what do you do? Um, Sheena, when you get that form and you have to fill out, what do you say?
1: Yeah, so I get this question often. I leave it blank. Um, And so I have two-year-old triplets. Y'all know this, but for some viewers, new information, I have two-year-old triplets. It's a blast, I promise you. Um, And I had to set up a pediatric appointment for them recently because we moved states and on the phone the question came inevitably after i gave the name of one of my children what is so-and-so's race and i was like we declined to answer and she she tried to make a case for um how, okay, well, when you're in the office, they're going to keep asking you this question. And then she tried to conflate race with ethnicity because the forms, that's how they thats how they keep you in the trap. They say, what is your race or ethnicity? It's the same question, right? Um, and I said, and that's fine. They can keep asking, but I'm not going to racialize myself because there's two ways in which we're racialized. We do it to ourselves and society does it to us. And just because society does a thing to me doesn't mean I have to comply right? And I think the more people recognize that for themselves and leave that box blank or choose decline to answer or whatever, um, then the less power the category will have. And then the institutions and people at large will then be less able to um, to discriminate based on the blankness of those categories. And then I think it'll be something that'll go out of practice if enough people aren't are refusing to, ch- to check the box, if that makes sense. Greg, what do you check?
2: Um, for many years, I would check Black or African-American. Um, I have now given to choosing other. Um, I usually do answer other, and uh, maybe it's the, uh, you know, me following certain uh, practices, I really didn't think about leaving it blank. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Me so neither. Gina, again, you know, for adding to that strategic approach, uh, I think that's that can that can be a, a good way of, of dealing with it because it is in the categorization itself, and the rela- and the racialization that the categorization uh, comes from that reinforces. The very idea of race, which is racist. <laughs> it could be unwitting, it could be not on purpose, it cannot, you know, I mean, in terms of the people who are tracking it. Sure. Uh, of course, people say, well, if you don't track it, then you can't counter it. And I've I've grappled with that notion. I've I've often I've been thinking that maybe there has to be a transitional period where we track it for a certain amount of time and then we don't. I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. But I know that every day in mainstream media, if they have a story dealing with someone who is of African descent or someone who is Black American or Caribbean American, uh, that they will, it's inevitably racialized. Black this, Black that which just, it reinforces it, it reinforces it. So um, I think we have to be very vigilant in the way that we language our own identity and the identities of others. And I think with that vigilance and being very careful, uh, we can help transform the actual reality of our lives because much of our lives, speaking of culture again, language is, one of the key mediums of culture, you change the language, you can change the culture and the way people perceive it. So um, it's a, it's a good area of uh, fighting this battle, the categorization and and either putting other or not answering it at all.
0: Hmm. What's coming up for me is a leave the box blank campaign. Maybe <laughs> one of these days. <laughs> so uh, well, what? I saw
1: I saw on Twitter somebody started the hashtag. It was something like race census twenty thirty race free or it was something like that. I'm probably getting the ordering of the words wrong, but essentially, um, the idea that in the next census, race will be not uh, an option, right? Um, and and I think I think what's interesting is we we're really taught largely through media, but also through our school systems to think in this sort of racialist ideological framework so that the absence of so-called race then becomes or feels uncomfortable and then we, and then the you know perfectly logical and valid concern of can we actually combat racism if we're not getting particular information often comes up but the ironic part to me is more often than not when race is included as uh as as some sort of data collection if we were really astute consumers and readers of data and certain information we would come to have certain ideas of how systemic racism works or what systemic racism is dispelled and we would come to recognize that we really would benefit from a a more socioeconomic focus as opposed to a racism you know racist anti-racist focus because the people who who are presumed to be impacted by racism it does there's not any overlap in terms of socioeconomic class class status and yet we presume that there is because of the language that the media uses conflating being black with being poor right for example or being black with being uneducated and we know those of us who know better we know that that is just a gross misrepresentation for American life and the population and how things break down. And if that's the case, it strikes me that collecting the race data only furthers the problems that many people profess to care about, such as poverty, right? Such as less um, access to opportunities in terms of education and so on. Those problems, to my mind, they continue to be largely ignored and dismissed because we're focusing on a boogeyman that isn't necessarily giving language, giving names to the problems that actually affect our societies.
0: Hmm. One of the most uh, loaded terms in the current discourse is colorblind. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I always, uh, in fact, I've heard people label just the use of the term as a microaggression. Um, I'm colorblind. Um, the, 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 it, it strikes me that it's that that um, when someone says that there's two ways of understanding that, and maybe you'll give me a, more than two ways of understanding, I suspect so, um, is one is that I literally don't see color. You know, if you took the term literally, um, which I don't think is true. I think we're all conditioned to see color. Um or that I'm colorblind and that I aspire to live in a society that doesn't racialize, that doesn't attribute value to race. uh, Let me start with you, Greg. How, How do you see that? What does colorblind bring up for you and how do you regard the use of that term?
2: Well, colorblind to me brings up a, from the 60s, I think, an aspiration that, as you said with your second definition, that people had to not allow the color of one's skin to be the basis of judging people when it should be the content of their character, which is a phrase, of course, we know from Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I think the first definition is literally not true, unless you are literally blind. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think that a colorblind aspiration is uh, a microaggression. I've got to say that uh, much of the discourse on microaggressions, I'm almost 60 years old and I've seen a lot and I've studied a lot. So what some people call microaggressions today would be laughed at by my ancestors who went through a way worse or to to riff on in a way my Southern ancestors, way worse than this okay at the same time you know there are there are microaggressions there are little yes. things that particularly today that can happen okay I've I got family who um and, and this gets to Sheena's point about the socioeconomic piece I have family who are working class <clears throat> I have family who a uh, like home healthcare worker for example and there are instances where she is, she feels that she is demeaned in part, at least because of race. And it's tricky because sometimes you don't know whether it's race or gender or the kind of work that she's doing or a combination thereof, okay? Right. Um, there are people who are, uh, if they're on food stamps or involved in the SNAP program, They're very sensitive to when they give that snap card, whether they're going to be looked down upon because they have that. And this, this is a cross race. Sure. Okay. Um, So I think that this book here, Racecraft, the soul of inequality in American life, which is a, a a very powerful (laughs) on. Yes, baby. (laughs) Um, I think that one of the things, one of the many points that they talk about in this book is how race is a cover for racism, as Dr. Sheena likes to say, but it's also a cover to not focus on class and social economic issues. Mm. So, so often, so many of our issues are really social economic in origin. And that we need to make sure that we are more more complete in the way we analyze problems and not fall into the trap of analyzing things so much through the prism of race. And to comment on your your, um, use of post-racial, which is another controversial term uh, like colorblind, I would say instead of saying post-racial, though I think that's another aspiration. I think it's a worthy aspiration. I would say trans-racial, going beyond race and and racialization and transcending it. So that's that's how I would put it. And that would be my basic comment. Yeah.
0: Before before I turn to Sheena, you know, it seems to, to me that this idea of colorblindness, we're almost practicing the opposite. I don't know if there's uh, a word for like color sight, sightness. But it, it seems that when we're looking at problems, especially when you look at issues like health disparities and you look at the data, it's easy to say, okay, well, um, uh, people of color or and particularly black people are facing uh, discrimination in healthcare because of disparities. But when you control for income, you often find that it's actually... Not about race; it's about income inequality, and that um, and that poor whites also are facing some of the same disparities in health outcomes as poor blacks or poor Latinos. Um, and and I think we we often miss that because we're so we're so honed in on race and what we and so careful not to in any way um, underestimate its value that we overestimate its value. Um, So, Sheena, what do you you think about the colorblind term? And if you want to also riff on this idea of conflating race and class, we'll take that too.
1: Yeah, so colorblindness, the reason why it's a, a hot topic, we'll say, for many people, or a point of contention for many people, is that often people who express ideas of colorblindness also discount the existence of racism, and mm. discount the impact and history of racism. So for many people, when they hear Patricia Williams in 1997, is a very dated book, but she wrote about the paradox of, of, of colorblindness in these ways, because what many people hear at expressions of colorblindness is, you don't see my color, thereby you don't see my race, thereby you don't see racism and the racism that I face or people who look like me face, right? Mm-hmm. And you see this type of language in, in a lot in the in the public discourse and this these sort of knee-jerk reactions to expressions of colorblindness for this primary reason, which is more evidence for me when I say racism is race, because if you interpret somebody who says, I don't see color, right? Which is a proxy for race as saying, I don't see racism, Voila, it's the same thing. Um, and and so that's a question I get often, which is how is theory of racistness different, or how is it not colorblindness? Well, to be colorblind, the idea is many very well-intended people want to be able to perceive race, i.e., they want to see they see color, but they don't want that to dictate how they treat somebody or how they themselves are treated, right? In the likes of in the in the spirit of martin luther king jr but and that's a that's a positive i would say that's a very positive aspiration theory of racistness though helps people understand and discover for themselves how there's nothing to ignore right there is no race to perceive and then ignore and try to combat because ultimately if we still believe and uphold the idea of race the hierarchy is still there and comes with it. And even if you are diligent and vigilant enough, indeed, to not let that impact how you treat people, there is a sort of unhealthiness that comes with perceiving oneself, never mind other people, perceiving oneself through a racialized framework. And uh, we can, the good news is, we can liberate ourselves from the category, we can transcend race thereby transcending racism, and we can help people because, because co- skin color in particular has become a proxy for race, then people's evidence for race is often skin color, right, or, or other phenotypical differences. But that, again, is it comes down to a conflation of ethnicity, which includes DNA and ancestry and all of the things that do exist in science and as a construction because culture comes with ethnicity oftentimes, but also um, that's still not race. So you can see a person's skin color. You can see a person, in other words, but not mistake that and make the mental leap to and race is real because it's hmm. not. And so I think, I think more people would do well to know that and to recognize that and practice that and get help themselves outside of the confines of racism. Because the downside, as we started this conversation, the downside of seeing people, seeing humans, and interpreting certain features and characteristics as indeed race, is that we then, because it's the same thing, see racism everywhere. Something bad happens to a racialized black person and a racialized white person is participating, for example, almost inevitably it's dubbed racism right that's why in the media plays this up all the time if you look at the articles about Rittenhouse or Ahmad arbery they play this up all the time because they're trying to evoke anger and fear and emotions from people right and if 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 racism was everywhere if it was omnipresent then i would say okay what like maybe what's the harm right we, we should see racism everywhere But the fact of the matter is, it's not actually everywhere. Um, And so we actually harm ourselves and we harm other people by insisting that race, that seeing race necessitates or automatically is a prerequisite for racism. Um, So anyway, I, I would just say that colorblindness is a good aspiration, but it doesn't get us to to what I think more of us actually want, which is to really see the content of people's characters and to be seen for the content of our character, primarily because it's still upholding the idea of race. But the good news is we can help people outside of those confines and stop conflating ethnicity and, and race and culture and all of those things as part of the process.
0: Hmm. So, use the term uh, "omnipresent" of racism. It made me think of the Omni American program that uh, that Greg just put on on anti-Semitism and racism. Greg, tell us about that and how you how you came up with that uh, idea. I know you were sort of one of the main initiators of it. Tell us a little bit about what your your thinking has been there.
2: Well, the the phrase "omni American" comes from the title of. Albert Murray's first book in 1970, The Omni-Americans. And it's a way of saying all American, or all American-ness, but using omni. It is a term that recognizes the plurality, the great diversity and tributaries of backgrounds traditions idioms lingos etc that have made america america at the same time it recognizes that there is there are common principles and values that we share based on those sacred documents that i alluded to earlier which to detail uh, we are talking about declaration of independence bill of rights the constitution. And I would add Lincoln's second inaugural address to that. Um, And based on those principles and values, we have something to measure whether or not we are fulfilling the social contract that Dr. King talked about or whether or not. And we also have a lighthouse of aspiration to continue moving towards Another thing about the Omni-American Project is that, and this is through the work of Albert Murray and Ralph Ellison and others who I think are inheritors of a tradition that I call the blues idiom wisdom tradition um, that focuses on the power of culture and the power of the arts and artistry for human fulfillment, individually and collectively. Mm. So there's a strong emphasis on excellence, cultural excellence, becoming the best you can be as an individual in the things you do, the way you think, the way you behave, um, the projects that you work on with other people. Um, But also excellence in terms of moral excellence Um, and excellence across the board. So again, we are aspiring to be the best we can be and to become better perpetually because it's a never-ending move. It's a never-ending fight and battle both individually and collectively because the truth of the matter is, I think that whether it's anti-Semitism, whether it's racism, uh, we are never, and I hate to tell folks this, we are never going to completely eradicate bigotry. I think since the, the dawn of you know, human beings in hunter-gatherer groups where the other other tribes being different, the fear of the other, xenophobia, is kind of a part of the human condition. The question is, what can we do to transcend that tendency of human beings to just be fearful and and because of difference? I think we have to learn how to embrace difference, understand difference, respect difference, and saying it's okay to be different. And then we still have things that we can work on and towards together, and that's what that uh, combating racism and anti Semitism together shaping an omni American future event, which happened um, in uh, uh, late October, was about. And that was the first of an annual event, and there will be ongoing activities and content uh, in between those annual events.
0: Mm. So, what, what the omni American idea. Is really to be able to see our common humanity amongst our differences. Is that right?
2: That's a good way of putting it. That's a good way of putting it. And even though the focus is on the American
0: or Americanness
2: uh, on America, in a way, but it's really it's not just about North America. It's really a conception that I lean on um, based on the work of philosopher Anthony Appiah, and also uh, philosopher Danielle Allen, who's written on the concept of rooted cosmopolitanism, which I think is a wonderful phrase and philosophy that says that we can be rooted in particular traditions, whether that's religious, ethnic, or otherwise. But we can also be cosmopolitan in that we are citizens of the world and even of the cosmos at the same time. These are not um, these are not dependent clauses. It's, I mean, or, 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 I'm sorry, these are not separate boxes that if you're rooted in certain traditions and histories and cultures, that you can't also be cosmopolitan at the same time. Mm-hmm. So this conception of the omni-American is really a conception that is dealing with a more even world consideration or planetary consideration. Because Murray, who was a mentor of mine, he would love to say that as an American, the entire history of human beings and human civilization was his inheritance as an American. So it's, you know, one of the things about cosmopolitans nothing is foreign to me hmm. per se. I may not be indigenous to it, but that doesn't mean I can't learn about it. That doesn't mean I can't. Uh, uh, embrace aspects of it, and even incorporate it into my own life if I choose
0: to do that. So that—that that's, that sounds very much on the opposite end of the spectrum as this idea of cultural appropriation, which treats the use of another culture's um, artifacts or expressions as as problematic. But you seem to be saying that. That's something we could even aspire to, correct me if I'm wrong.
2: Not only is it something we can aspire to, that's the way culture works.
1: Amen. Culture
2: is an exchange, (laughs) an interchange of beliefs and practices and values. That's the way culture has worked for thousands of years. Even when there is a situation where there is a conquering group or conquering people, they very often are deeply influenced by the cultures of the people they have come to dominate in political, social, and economic terms. That happened in America, that happened in Greece, that happened in Rome, that happened all over the world and vice versa, there are just, that's the way culture works. So, and I'm talking about just the reality of culture now. Is cultural appropriation a thing? It's not totally false. No, if you you steal something, claim it as your own, and don't acknowledge the originators of something, that's cultural appropriation. But if you respect and give it honor, and in terms of like, let's take jazz, for example, there are so many great quote unquote white American jazz artists who acknowledged that jazz was founded and innovated by black Americans, a term by the way, for me, that is ethnic and cultural. They honor that and they learn the idiom because why is that foreign to them? They're Americans, jazz is an American art form. So why should it be foreign? And not only do so-called white Americans do but around the world, musicians have been profoundly yes. influenced by jazz and have aspired to play it within their own uh, idiomatic uh, way so that they'll incorporate aspects of like Vijay Iyer, for example, um, who's Indian. I mean, he incorporates not only aspects of his ethnic Indian heritage, but other musical forms also. That's just the way culture works. So it's, it's something that it is, but it's also something we aspire to and it's a question of how we frame these things. What are the, how do we perceive uh, these dynamics? These are cultural dynamics. These are not racial dynamics. Okay, because of my my color of my skin, I can play jazz. No, I have to go through years of practice on my horn or in my in my singing in order to master or attempt to master an art form. And anybody else who would want to do that has to do the same. That's true for basketball. That's true for any number of areas that we can point to that are examples of culture in action or material culture.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. Sheena, what,
0: go ahead. Yep.
1: I was going to say what Greg um, just said resonates with me. I'm teaching a class called Creolization in Literature next semester. And I'm calling on the likes of Edward Glissant, who has a very... Um, rhizomatic view of identity, and he talks about Glissant and other West Indian writers. They talk about how um, too often, especially in the West, we tend to think of origins in singular terms, and so there's often this quest, largely because of how racialist ideology operates, there's this quest to, to always find one's origin and a sort of discounting and devaluing, and uh, the understanding that cultural formation is multi directional. Um, and uh, for better or for worse, that's what happened largely after and as a result of the Middle Passage. And in that multi directional cultural f- formation and process, because we still are encouraged and we encourage our youth to think of each other largely in segregated terms, that is black and white or Asian, really racialized terms, there's this um, this extension of that thought that becomes problematic and hinders us from really recognizing the shared humanity Greg was so artfully explaining and describing and pointing to, because racism operates within the language and the practice of race. And if that's the case, and we're prevented oftentimes from seeing our cultural similarities, from seeing our Americanness, from seeing how to be American is to participate in culture in a variety of different ways. And that that no, no two of us really share a culture because of race, right? Culture produces race. Race doesn't produce culture, as Greg, I think, was also saying, or at least how I'm interpreting him. And if we, when we when we can help people outside of the box of racism, which I spell with the word race in it, then then we can help them uh, really grapple with ideas such as cultural appropriation, which I think can help people unlock other aspects of who they are culturally and who their neighbor is culturally, who their classmate is culturally, uh, which I think only expands our recognition of of each other's shared humanities and I think there's this emphasis on uh, going back 360 to how we started this conversation there is this emphasis on difference but the the emphasis is being placed largely on immutable characteristics again skin color being a proxy for race and so on and so forth such that the diversity is supposed that it's that we are really tricking ourselves into thinking we're increasing or or honoring or elevating is misleading because then when you have something called diversity of thought which exists inside newsflash every single racialized group <laughs> in the country and in the world um, then all of a sudden we want to squash that diversity that's not the diversity we want we just want the sort of stereotypical upholding of what race is. And thereby, somebody can culturally appropriate just by, you know, wearing their hair a certain way or wearing a certain t shirt or singing a certain song. And the divisiveness, the racism that comes along with that because it's attached, I think is really precluding more people from seeing themselves and seeing other people with the grace and love and humanity that I think we each deserve. Mm. Um, But there are solutions and there are are alternatives and the type of work that Greg does with helping emphasize culture, but not just emphasizing cultural differences, but also pointing to similarities and sort of the sharedness of culture, I think is in large part going to be what, what helps move things like theory of racistness forward and also becomes a result of work like theory of racistness. There's a synergy there because it's definitely interconnected.
0: Yeah. You know, it seems to me that if you were trying to design a discourse that was pulling, that would pull people apart rather than bring them together, you'd emphasize things like cultural appropriation and you'd broaden the discourse around microaggressions to make them, you know, apply in places where really they shouldn't and you'd, um, you'd racialize everything you possibly could, and you'd emphasize whiteness and blackness and so forth. Um, and it seems that that's what we've been sort of lurching into in this current ideological moment. And it sounds like you're both saying there's another way to do this. There's another way to think about who we are and how we fit into this world and how we can make common cause and make this country a better place and make this world a better place.
2: Um, Absolutely. Absolutely, David. Um, a lot of this we're talking about with these, this particular um, ideology that I frame in the context of a kind of a postmodern progressivism, um, not only reifies and reinforces race and therefore is racially essentialistic, which when I did graduate work in the nineties, being an essentialist was a no-no. And it seems like there were certain lessons from the critical race theory that I studied then that have been lost, like the focus on agency. Back then it was like, we must, marginalized groups must have agency. seemed like they threw that out the window (laughs) and focus on victimization. Um, But I would say that focusing on immutable characteristics things you cannot change uh, is a is a very dangerous route which when you focus on certain ideologies, those can change when you focus on cultural idioms, those things can be embraced but if you're just focusing on race and and we have to we have to acknowledge it I am not trying to as an expression, that I've came up with in the last year through some conversations that I've had with some folks where it's not about racial bypassing. It's not about we're trying to not recognize the problems that still exist and have existed based on race, racialization, and racism. That's not it. But if you are hyper-focused on that to the exclusion of other dynamics that influence human situations and predicaments and problems, then you just you you're not you don't have a large enough sphere of analysis to be able to take wise and pragmatic action to counter some of those problems, and you end up as as Sheena said earlier you you end up furthering those problems even unwittingly. But this is the thing: a lot of times we're talking about power. Now, that's on a couple of levels. It's on the level of when you look at postmodernism, when you look at certain French uh post-structuralist and postmodern thinkers, the focus is on power relations. So the thing that happens is that we have now people who have been very strongly immersed in that type of, of worldview, of way of looking at and analyzing human dynamics. We have the exercising of power in social institutions and they're doing it and they're they're very, because the focus in that realm is on language, they're very sophisticated in the way they use language. And so to counter it, we do have to present other alternatives. We have to critique it. And I also think we have to say where we say those, some of the perspectives are valid. I think we really have to do both, but there are other ways of seeing and conceiving of our problems, our situations and how we can move forward than just that. Then either say, I'll mention those extremes, uh, a white nationalist view on one side and a anti-racist in the mode of a postmodern progressive perspectives. There are other ways of seeing things, analyzing things, mm-hmm. and definitely other ways To move forward. So, thank you for having us on so we could discuss some of those ways.
0: Yeah. You know, a a few months ago, one of our first live stream events at the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values was on new paradigms on Black Jewish relations. And I didn't know entirely at that point what I even meant by it. I just knew (laughs) that there must be a richer discourse out there. And I feel like we're sort of pioneering that now, that we're laying out a new way of thinking about relations. And it might not be Jewish-Black relations per se, but but a certain kind of cultural intergroup relations that can work very differently than the way we might have looked at it in the past. And so I'm, I'm so grateful to have you both in conversation to really help think that through. And we're going to be doing a lot more thinking through and strategizing in the days ahead. We've got some big plans in that regard. So, um, you know, we'll keep you posted. But um, thank you. Greg, thank you, Sheena, for spending time with us. Happy Hanukkah, everyone. It's the last night of Hanukkah. Chag Sameach. And uh, we'll look forward to continuing the conversation soon. Take thank care you. now.
1: Happy Hanukkah.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much.
2: Happy Hanukkah.